Well, uh, about a year or so ago, uh, my kids had some friends over at the house and they began to talk about uh, how their parents encouraged them to save money. So as kids do, they started uh, sharing notes with one another. Uh, this is the uh, strategy that my parents use. It's the strategy that my parents use. And so my kids explained to their friends uh, some of the things that we would do to encourage them to save money, to give money, uh, how to think about how they spend their money. And then their friends shared their parents' strategy. And uh, I learned later that their dad, his strategy to get them to save was that he said, look, whatever you save with me, whatever you put into my savings account, so to speak, my bank with me, I will give you interest, right? I will pay you interest compounded on a monthly basis for the money that you kids give me. And, and at the time, the interest rate he was giving them was 20% compounded monthly, Now, yeah, many of you had the same reaction that I had. I thought, wow, I don't have any investments in my life that pay me 20% compounded monthly. I thought, man, that's a fantastic interest rate. So I texted him and I said, hey, is there any chance that I could get in on the deal? Right? I heard that your bank is paying an amazing interest rate. And he sent me a message back and said, very funny, He said, no, it's only for my kids, and not only is it only for my kids, but that deal is about to expire because they figured it out and they are bankrupting me with this deal. Now, I obviously was just giving him a hard time, uh, but I, I began to think later, you know, what if I really believed that that promise applied to me, right? He had made a promise, a specific promise to a particular group of people, his own children, And it was also limited in time, right? The, the promise was not going to last forever. It was only for a particular time to a particular group of people. But what if I believed that it applied to me and it applied to me forever? And so I began to live accordingly. So instead of taking my money and investing it in something uh, practical or sensible, like an IRA or a mutual fund or whatever, I saved up all my money on the hope that one day he would give me 20% interest compounded monthly. What would happen? Well, I would have invested my hope in the wrong place, in a promise that was never given to me. And in the process, I would have lost the opportunity to invest in something better. Now, the reason I share that is because the passage that we're looking at this morning, when we read it, uh, we see a promise, right? We see a promise, and it's a promise given to a group of people at a particular time in a particular place, much like the promise my friend gave to his kids. And I think our temptation is to take that promise and we say, you know what, this promise applies to everybody in every time, in every place, right? And, and in, the, in the process, we miss what the promise is actually saying. And, and, we miss perhaps some realities about the character of God and the nature of what God is doing in history that will help us to invest our hope in the right place rather than the wrong place, One of the hardest challenges of biblical interpretation as we walk through this misunderstood series, one of the hardest challenges of biblical interpretation in general is when we read a passage from the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that was written 
to a different group of people at a different time. And we've got to ask the question, how much, if any, of this passage or this promise applies directly to me? And how much of it only applied to the people to which it was originally given? Now, I say that, I want to be very clear. Here at Grace Bible Church, we believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture We believe in the inspiration of the scripture. What I mean is we believe every word of the scripture is God's word, right? Divinely inspired, breathed out by God's spirit. And so every part of the scripture is profitable to help us know God and to follow God because it is without error, right? We believe that absolutely. It's a fundamental of who we are. It's one of the reasons we are called Grace Bible Church, Right, But within that belief, we also uh, hold that not every passage of Scripture directly applies equally to us as Christians in the church in 2019, right? So, So what I wanted to do this morning is take one example of a passage where it can be tough to sort out. How does this apply, if at all, to us today, right? 2 Chronicles 7.14 is one of those passages, right? And I think it's critical for us to understand how to approach passages like this so that, so that we invest our hope, we invest our energy and time in the great promises of God that apply to us as a church. Because what we're going to see as we look at this passage this morning is there are some, there are some foundational aspects of God's character that we want to draw from this passage that will then lead us into the truth of the good news of the gospel. That's what we're going to see this morning. And and, and just as a reminder as we get going, remember last week we said, I I mentioned one of my seminary professors who used to say, three most important aspects of studying the scripture are what? Context, context, and context. So that's going to set the stage for us this morning as we look at 2 Chronicles 7.14. If you've got a Bible, you can go over there. We're going to read a lot of 2 Chronicles 7 this morning. I'm going to have much of it up here on the screen, but some of it you may want to read from your own Bible. 2 Chronicles 7.14. Let's look at the passage together. You've probably seen the passage before. And if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, many of you have heard this passage before. Maybe you've seen it plastered on a wall at a church. Maybe you have heard a politician utilize this passage. What I'm going to do, just like we did last week, I want to share a few quotes that illustrate how this passage is typically used in the United States today, and then we'll talk about, I'm going to kind of summarize how it's usually understood before we dive into what it actually means. So, so bear with me, a couple of these quotes are kind of long, but I think they're necessary to get the point across. So how is it usually understood or interpreted? Let me show you a few quotes. This one is from uh, Phil Bryant. Phil Bryant used to be the governor of Mississippi. He said uh, in, his, in his departing speech as he was leaving office, he said, Mississippi has sought this elusive blessing as we struggled to become one state. Our people have endured the harshest of times and treatment and still achieved greatness. This greatness, we pray, will exist in our time and for all time for Mississippi. For as it was written long ago, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, then will I, I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. 
May this promise always be our guide, and may God continue to bless Mississippi and the United States of America. So, so let me just summarize what he's getting at. He's saying, look, Mississippi is a great place, right? Now, I've been there, debatable, I realize that, okay? <laughs> but here's, he's saying, look, Mississippi is a fantastic place. We want Mississippi to continue to be a fantastic place, to thrive, to have material prosperity, to be successful, to be blessed by God. And he says, look, God has made a promise to us as the people of Mississippi and the people of the United States that if we will pray, if we will humble ourselves, if we will do what is right, if we will put that input into the system, then God will bless our state and God will bless our nation. Let me show you a couple of other quotes from the opposite end of the political spectrum, Louis Farrakhan. This is at the Million Man March in 1995. He said, but we've had enough now. This is why you're in Washington today. We've had enough. We've had enough distress, enough affliction. We're ready to bow down now. If my people who are called by my name would just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Now, in the context of that speech, Louis Farrakhan is talking about racial tension in the country, right? And he's saying it's created, it's created disunity and conflict and problems. And he says, look, if we will do this, if we will bow down and humble ourselves and pray, what will God do? He will remove those problems from our nation, from our world. Right now, the irony, of course, is Louis Farrakhan is not a Christian, nor does he claim to be a Christian. But he still took the passage and he says, this is how it applies in 1995 at the time to the United States and to the tensions that plague us. And we have a promise. All right, let me show you one more just to show you it's not just politicians who utilize the passage. This is from a pastor by the name of Robert Jeffress. In a recent sermon, he said this, For the first 160 years of our nation's history, every school child who went to school heard about God. They memorized his laws. The New England Primer was a textbook used in many, if not most, schools in this country. And that New England primer had verses from Scripture about God that every student had to memorize in order to pass. About 60 years ago, we allowed the liberals, the secularists in this country to engage in a social experiment. And the experiment was this. Let's expunge any mention of God from the public square, from the schools, from the government. Let's stop prayer. Let's stop Bible reading. Let's remove all of those things and see if we can still have a good society, a moral society without God. Well, guess what? No nation can reject God and be blessed by God. What is the cure for what is happening in the nation right now? It's the same solution that God gave more than 3,000 years ago to his people in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their iniquities, and then... I will heal their land. Again, what's he getting at? The United States has wandered. The United States has suffered. We've suffered economically. We've suffered militarily. We have suffered spiritually. And if we will obey these words, God has given us a promise to restore us to a place of prominence economically, militarily, and spiritually. All right, so let me, let me summarize then typically how the passage 
is understood. The summary of how it's usually used is something along these lines. If the citizens of the United States will pray and ask God for forgiveness, then he will restore our nation to material prosperity and spiritual health. Right? If the, if the United States will obey 2 Chronicles 7.14, then all of the blessings God promised will accrue to our nation. We will prosper in every way. Okay, so what we're going to talk about this morning for a while is we're going to talk about why I feel like that understanding of the passage misses the mark. And then we'll talk about what it actually means and what it actually says. Because the passage does have some powerful things to say to us today. In 2019, as the people of God. But we're going to talk about why the typical understanding misses the mark a little bit. Now before we go further though, I want to make a couple of caveats, right? Because I recognize I run the risk of upsetting everybody this morning with this passage. So let me make a couple of caveats. All right, the first one is this. Uh, We will not be discussing whether specific policies are good or or bad, right? So from that previous quote, of course, if you read that previous quote, the implication in the quote is, look, if we would just return to school-sponsored prayer, if we would just return to a time when abortion was not legal, if we would return to these, this era, then God will bless our land. We are not going to talk this morning about specific policies, whether there should be school-sponsored prayer or not. I have opinions on that. You will not hear those opinions this morning. Right? Because those opinions are irrelevant to what the scripture tells us. Right? So we're not going to be discussing whether specific policies are good or bad. We're not going to be discussing whether specific candidates or parties are good or bad. We will also not be discussing whether the United States of America is the best country in the world or not. Hey, I love the United States. I'm an American. I love my country. Right? But that's a subjective decision, isn't it? Which country is the best in the world? By which measure? How do we determine that? The Bible doesn't really tell us. So that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I think that's important because I don't want you to take away from what we're going to say this morning that because a passage like this doesn't apply directly to us today, that that means that the United States is somehow subpar or or lesser or greater than any other nation on the earth. That's not what we're talking about. What are we talking about this morning is this. We will be discussing whether we can apply the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14 to the United States in 2019. And, and we will be discussing then if our hope is not in the strengthening of the United States itself as a national entity, then where is our hope? Why do we pray for our leaders? Why do we pray for our government and our nation? And its people. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So with that, let me dive in for just a few minutes to the text and explain why is the usual interpretation incorrect? Why does it miss the mark? I'm just going to give a few reasons this morning before we then uh, move forward into what it does mean. All right, the first reason is this, as, as we've kind of hinted at throughout the introduction here. This promise was given to the nation of Israel. And not to the United States. Okay, Given to the nation of Israel, not to the United States. Now again, I want to stress, we believe in inerrancy. We believe that this is the word of God. We believe that we benefit from reading it. We believe that we learn a lot about God and how to follow him. 
right? But not every passage of the scripture and not every promise of the scripture was made directly to you and me as believers in 2019 in the church. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations of what I'm talking about. So some of you in this room, I know that you are doctors, right? You're physicians. Now, I want you to envision for a minute a scenario where a patient walks into your office and says to you, hey, I've got a problem. I've got hives, right? And whenever I'm outside, especially in the sun, I break out in hives and I itch everywhere and it's terrible. It's a terrible rash. Can you help me? And you as a physician, you say, yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm a doctor. That's what I do. And I'm a Christian doctor, in fact. So I believe in using the Bible in my treatment process. So here's what I'm going to uh, suggest to you. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Right? And if you're the patient, right? If I'm your patient, I'm going to say, now, wait a second. First of all, that sounds expensive. (laughs) Secondly, that's weird. Like, is there a pill or something else I can do besides that? And you say, no, that's a promise. Look at it. It's in the scripture. It says it. You go wash in the Jordan and you will be clean. It's right there. I've pulled the verse. It's right there. Now, those of you who know the context, of course, know that promise isn't made to you, is it? It's made to Naaman, who was the commander of the army of Syria. It was made by the prophet Elisha to a particular person at a particular time in a particular place, right? It's a promise, but not not a promise for you and me. There are promises in Scripture as we read them in their context that are not directed at you and me. Let me give you just a couple of other passages for illustration purposes. If you will not listen to me, I will continue striking you and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. Okay, so less of a promise, more of a warning. Now you could use this as a parenting passage if you wanted to. Right? You could pull it out and you could say, look, kids, it says it right there. You're disobedient. You're disobeying your mom. You're disobeying your dad. Keep it up and you can expect the wild beasts. All right? But this promise isn't made to your kids, is it? It's for the nation of Israel. Let me just give you one more from the same chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus 26. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, Then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. Okay, so Mike just shared a Creekside building update this morning. Some of you know we have been uh, working on getting that building process started for months. And the main thing that has slowed us down has been rain upon rain upon rain, right? Not rain in season, rain out of season. More rain than you can imagine. So I read something like this and I go, what did I do wrong? Am I not walking in God's statutes and observing his commandments? Why does it keep raining when it shouldn't be raining? Well, that promise wasn't made to me. This promise was made to a particular group of people at a particular time. To the nation of Israel in the context of God's covenant with them under the law. All right, when we look at 2 Chronicles 7.14 then, what I want us to recognize is this is a passage that was made 
the promise that was made to the nation of Israel at a particular time. We're going to talk more about that in just a couple of minutes. I'll dive into some of the context. But but for the moment, uh, the interpretation misses the mark. The usual interpretation misses the mark because the promise was given to Israel and not to America. Secondly, the quote is incomplete. Now, we saw this last week when we examined do not judge lest ye be judged. Remember when we talked about how you can't just pull out one portion of a passage or one portion of a text and utilize it for a broad principle if you haven't read the context, okay? The quote is incomplete. Now, one of the things I want to point out, actually, is that Second Chronicles 7.14, usually when you see it quoted, uh, it begins with an if, okay? But in the text, in the scripture, it actually doesn't begin with an if in verse 14. It begins with an and. Now, there is an if, but the if is in verse 13, right? So typically what people do when they quote it out of context is they pull that if down into verse 14 and they skip verse 13. So for just a moment, if you've got your Bible, I want to read verses 11 through 18 so that we can get a sense of the whole context of Second Chronicles seven fourteen, Starting in verse 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Verse 13 now, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people... And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. All right, we're going to go into some detail in some of those verses in a few minutes. But again, I read that to point this out. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is right in the middle of a section where God is talking to Solomon at the occasion of the dedication of Solomon's temple. Right, And as you read the passage, it's very clear that what God is talking about relates directly to some covenants that he had made with the people of Israel and with Solomon's father, David, right? So that the quote is incomplete if we just go to verse 14 and pull it out and use it as a blanket promise for every nation at every time in every place. And in general, this is the principle I want to communicate. Anytime somebody does that, right? Anytime somebody takes one verse that begins especially with an and or an or or an if and says this is a principle for your life, always ask the question, what comes before that verse what comes after that verse, right? So imagine just for a moment that you and I find ourselves in an argument one day over some Bible passage or maybe a political viewpoint or whatever, and you and I disagree, and I begin to get frustrated because you won't see things my way, and I say, look, I'm a pastor, I know the Bible, I have a verse for you, okay? And here's my verse for you. If only you would be altogether silent, 
For you, that would be wisdom. Okay, and I pull that out and I say, that applies to you right now. Right? It's God's way of saying to you, I win. Right? And so I need you to be quiet. Now, what are you going to say? Well, maybe you've left some things out of the context of that verse, right? Like the entire flow of the book of Job. I can't do that. As I was preparing to preach this uh, for the first time over at Creekside a few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a message on Facebook, and she said, hey, I saw a meme going around recently that had this passage on it, and she sent me the meme. This is from the book of Ezra, chapter 10, verse 4. It says, rise up, take courage, and do it. Now, that's very inspirational, the way that it is put together. In the context, though, what's happening? Well, this was after the exile, and the people of Israel, the men of Israel, had married idolatrous wives. And Ezra says, we need to purify the nation, and so you need to send away the idolatrous wives because they are leading our hearts away from God. So rise up, take courage, and do it. Okay, this is not a passage about running your next 5K. (laughs) But what do we do? We pull it out and we say that applies to every person in every place at every time. It's incomplete. Okay, and the same thing happens to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 when we say, man, this applies over here. I'm going to pull it out of its context and move it over here. But we've left out most of the passage. Okay, so the usual interpretation misses the mark because the quote is incomplete. And then thirdly, and this is important, because our prayers... Do not obligate God to give us what we want. Our prayers do not obligate God to give us what we want. See, I think when when the passage is typically utilized in the way it is utilized, the, the, the implication is this, that if we would just pray harder, if we could just be better Christians, work harder, do better, then the output will be God will give our nation prosperity, spiritual revival, material and military success. Right? And see, the danger of that understanding of how God works is what do we do then when the output is not what we expect? What do we do when we say, I, I'm, I'm praying for something I thought that God wanted? And the output isn't what I hoped for. And it begins to unseat us in terms of our trust in God. I was listening not long ago to an interview on a podcast. And it was with a, a Christian musician who had since walked away from the faith, right? He had once followed Jesus and then he decided he didn't believe in God anymore. And the interviewer asked this musician, well, what was it that led you away from your belief in God? And and he said, well, here's what it was. He said, I was struggling in my marriage and it seemed like my marriage was falling apart. And I I kept praying that something would happen, that God would do something, that God would fix it. That God would allow my wife to overlook all of my transgressions and move on. And he said, I prayed and I prayed and it didn't work out. And I decided, look, if God doesn't answer that prayer that way, then he must not be there at all. And so what happened is he had a view of God. 
that if I pray a certain way and the outcome isn't what I hope, then maybe God isn't real after all. Right? Because the God he believed in was a God that would give you a sure output of blessing in response to fervent prayer. But that's not what we see in the scripture. We're going to talk about the particular context of 2 Chronicles 7 and why God makes that type of promise to Israel. But even in the context of his covenant with Israel, the important thing to know is that the law itself and the blessings of the law itself, those were given by God's grace to the people. And there was never a sense in which God said to them, look, if you are good enough, you will earn my blessing. That's not how God works. God's blessing is always by grace. All right, so we'll talk in just a moment about how the law operated, but the key thing is this. Our prayers don't obligate God to give us what we want. I was reading this past week about how uh, Nigeria, the country of Nigeria, they have one of the highest percentages in the world of evangelical Christians, right? There are more evangelical Christians in Nigeria than there are in the United States, at least in terms of percentages. And yet, there are more people living in extreme poverty in Nigeria than anywhere else in the world, right? So the question is this, is that because Christians in America pray better or more often than Christians in Nigeria? What are they doing wrong that we're doing right Right, so the, the danger, of course, you see, is, is if we take this view of how God works, it leads us into a faulty understanding of God. Okay, our prayers do not obligate God to give us what we want. Okay, so then the question is this. What does the passage then mean in its context? And here's how I'm going to summarize it, and then we'll, we'll walk through it for just a few minutes. Under the law of Moses... The nation of Israel received material and spiritual blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Okay, so let me again, let me set the stage for this passage. All right, so we understand exactly what was going on. Okay, the context of the passage, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this is at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Now, you may remember, God had made a covenant with King David, Solomon's father, right? And and he had told David, Look, I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to give you a throne. I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you a kingdom. David, you will always have a descendant who will have the right to reign over Israel. You will always have a kingdom over which to reign, right? He had made this covenant with David. That covenant with David came right after David had said what? David said, God, I want to build a house for you in Jerusalem. I want to build you a temple. And God said, no, you're not going to build the temple. Solomon, your son, will build the temple. But he said, David, I'm going to give you a kingdom and a descendant who will reign on the throne. And you'll always have the right to reign. Your line will always have the right to reign. So Solomon comes along and now it's Solomon's turn to reign. And he builds the temple that David didn't get to build, right? So now Solomon has built this temple. And here they are at the dedication of the temple. And remember, what was the temple? The temple was the place where the Jewish people worshipped God, right? So they brought sacrifices to God at the temple. And remember, in the midst of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwelt in a very powerful 
and visual way. The only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest of Israel. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, he could go in. Right. So this is the dedication of the place where the nation of Israel, in the midst of the nations, will worship God. And so God says, Solomon, I want to remind you at the occasion of the dedication of the temple, I want to remind you of the covenant that I made with your fathers. There was a covenant with Abraham and there was a covenant with David. That if the people of Israel will worship and will obey, I will make you a kingdom of priests. That is, I will make you a group of people in the midst of the nations who are blessed. Why? Not just so you can have full bellies, not just so you can be wealthy or successful, but why? So that in the midst of the nations, you will demonstrate the kindness and the grace and the love of God so that people from all the nations will come and worship God at this temple. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk again in just a moment a little bit more about that, but the occasion is significant. The dedication of Solomon's temple. All right, secondly, this is God's response to Solomon's prayer from chapter 6. All right, particularly verses 26 to 31, if you'll look for just a moment. Chapter 6, verses 26 to 31. This is in the middle of Solomon's prayer. And he says this, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place, that is toward the temple, and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. So that when we get over to chapter 7, what does God say to Solomon? Solomon, verse 12, I've heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Then he goes on. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. Verse 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. Will forgive their sin. And will heal their land. You see what's going on. Solomon says God you made a covenant to my father David. That, that his kingdom would endure. That your people would endure. That there were blessings for obeying your covenant and there were curses for disobeying. Some of you will remember Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. There were promises that God had made uh, to the nation of Israel under Moses. Look at these promises. If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. 
But if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What was going on? Well, God had chosen the descendants of Abraham, remember? And he said, look, I want you to to live in the midst of the nations. I want you to reflect my character. So out of grace, God says, I'm going to give you a way to know how to reflect me. And it's called the law. And if you obey the law, as long as you're on this land, I'm going to bless you. Why? So that the nations can see that the people who follow Yahweh live blessed lives under God's grace, under God's protection. But if you disobey, I will remove you from the land. Because the intention of the blessings is not merely for your own benefit, but for the glory of God. Now, here here was the challenge. Israel never did it. Okay, that was the real problem. See, there's a promise here. If you will obey, if you will do what is right, if you will follow me faithfully, then I will bless you. The whole history of the Old Testament is Israel failing and experiencing the curses of the covenant. King after king after king leads the people into idolatry. When they go into exile, finally, into Babylon, The scripture tells us, you know, one of the reasons they go into exile is this, because one of the basic commands of the law was that you were to observe not only a Sabbath day where you didn't work, but actually a Sabbath year where every seventh year you would allow the land to rest because it was God's land and it was a way of saying to the people, you can trust me to provide in that seventh year. I don't want you to work the land. Well, guess what? They never obeyed that. For almost 500 years. Right? So they skip 70 Sabbath years. And when they go into exile, God says, you know what? I'm going to give the land its rest. Because you're going to be gone. For 70 years. See, the problem with the law was that in theory, yeah, if you can do it, man, the blessings of God will flow down upon you, on your nation. But they could never do it. Because their hearts were wicked and sinful. Just like ours. So what do we see play out then as we move through the Old Testament and we move into the New Testament? It's this. We, we need a new solution. We need some other way to be able to reflect God. And so, so what happens? Well, God's perfect son, Jesus, enters the scene. And he says, look, I I didn't come to abolish the law, but actually to fulfill it, to fulfill it for you, because you can't do that. So Jesus lives a perfect life in perfect fulfillment of the law. And then then what he did is, is he died in our place. He took on himself the punishment that we deserved because we couldn't fulfill the law, neither could the nation of Israel. And then he rose again demonstrating that God accepted his sacrifice and accepted his life. And so so here's now the key is that the old covenant of the law is set aside largely because we couldn't do it. We failed. And there's a new covenant in Christ's blood. No longer the sacrifices of the temple, but the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now if you're connected to Jesus Christ... God says, I will lavish upon you all the blessings of the kingdom that the people of Israel could never earn. 
And one day forever and ever, you will live in peace and security and harmony with enough to eat forever and ever and ever because of Jesus. All right, so this is why the author of Hebrews says, when Jesus set a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear, right? So, so now, no longer are we a, a physical nation like Israel trying to obey the law so that God will bless us, right? So, so that's why a promise like this, it doesn't apply to the United States of America in 2019. Instead, who are we? We are the people of God now connected to God through Jesus Christ. And if you're connected to God through Jesus Christ, the scripture says the spirit that raised him from the dead, the, the powerful spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, right? So I- instead of trying to fulfill the Old Testament law, what do we do? We listen to the voice of the Spirit. That when we pray, when we read the Scripture, when we seek to follow Jesus, now we are the temple of God. And as the temple of God, we reflect God in the world. Romans chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, right? This is why Peter would say, hey, you're a kingdom of priests, right? Israel Israel failed to fulfill those commandments, but now through the spirit of God, we are a kingdom of priests to mediate the good news to the world around us that we serve a God of grace and a God of forgiveness and a God of power. And so the promises of Jesus Christ, man, they, they leave the promise of Second Chronicles 7 in the dust because of the power of the Spirit. So again, the passage in its original context is talking to the nation of Israel, but what does it mean for us? Most of what we're going to learn from Second Chronicles chapter 7 applies to the character of God, right? So come back for a moment to my illustration at the beginning of my friend who gave a lavish interest rate to his children. Uh, Now that may not apply to me, right? I couldn't tap into that interest rate, sadly. Okay, but there are things I can learn about my friend, right, that might apply in, in the rest of my relationship with him, right? So, so I learn that he's a, he's a generous person, right? Questionable at math, but generous with his money. I learned that he's kind to his kids. I learned that he, he wants to be a giving person, right? And, and in my friendship with him, I've experienced that in, in other ways, even though that promise wasn't for me. Right? That's what we see in Second Chronicles 7. As we read it, we see the character of God. And, and that character uh, it, it is how God relates to all of his people at all times. What do we see? God is gracious. Notice the, the whole context of 2 Chronicles 7 is, is basically Samuel saying, hey, God, I just need you to know, I, I have a good feeling or a bad feeling that we're not going to be able to obey you. So when we disobey, will you please forgive us? And God says, yes, I will. See, the point of 2 Chronicles 7 is not if you're good enough, I'll bless you. The point is, hey, you're really pretty bad. You're going to fail. And if you ask me for forgiveness, I'll open up my hands and I'll bring you back. 
That's the God we serve. That's the God we see in Jesus Christ, a gracious God, most powerfully demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were running away. 1 Timothy 1, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not people who were good enough, not people who prayed hard enough, not people who followed the law. Sinners who were running away. God is gracious. God listens to our prayers. Please don't walk away from this sermon hearing me say, don't pray for our country. That's not what I'm saying. Right? And in fact, in the New Testament, there's an exhortation for us to pray for our leaders. Again, from the book of First Timothy, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I want to point something out. Paul says to Timothy, tell everybody, pray for your king. Pray for those in authority, but not so that Rome can be the greatest, right? Rome was already, by the way, the greatest. They were the strongest. They were the richest. He's not saying, I want you to pray so that Rome can prosper. But why should you pray for those in authority? Here's why. Because I want an environment in our nation and in our world where people can hear about Jesus. So you pray for those in authority that they will create a context where we can live a tranquil and quiet life so we can worship Jesus and proclaim Jesus. That's it. So you pray for them to know Jesus so that they will be open to those who know Jesus. You pray for wise and just laws so that we have the opportunity to share Jesus. That's the point. God listens to our prayers. We see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And then thirdly, God rewards humility. The attitude that says, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need your grace. James chapter 4, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Right? Just as he did with Israel, he says, if, if, you will, if you will humble yourself. Because God is positively predisposed to those who don't try to pretend that they're good enough. Those who say, God, I, I need your mercy and grace. We see that in the gospel itself. First step toward trusting Jesus is to say, God, I failed. I'm a sinner. I've disobeyed you. So please forgive. If If that's you this morning and you don't know you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the message really this morning for you is, is God is ready with his grace to forgive and welcome you, to know him and to have eternal life. So God is gracious, God listens to our prayers, God rewards humility. Very quickly as we close then, pray humbly for our world, our nation, and God's people. Secondly, we confess our sins to God and we ask for his grace and humility. And then thirdly, when it comes to what God does in the nations, we say, you know what, I I can't control that, I I don't have to fret or worry about that. I can trust him. 
And I can be a part of his kingdom of priests to reflect him to the world around me through the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this time and we thank you for your word. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to know you in deeper ways. Father, we pray that we'd trust your timing. We pray that we would be people of humility and we pray that we would look for and receive your grace. We know that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would live in that reality day by day as we worship and proclaim our King, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.